Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. As for you, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and so you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of him. And the second reading is from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. And this is at page 106 of the Bible. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word, and I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let me lead us in a prayer before we begin. Lord God, we pray simply this, that we would have ears to hear what you have to say to each of us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have the third in our series on 1 John, and we've heard from Simon a couple of times in recent weeks about how do we know that we are authentic Christians? And I think what I took away from Simon's first talk was that we know because we walk in the light. We walk, it's a walk, it's a lifestyle, it's a habit. And then Simon went on to explain in his second talk that an important part of that walking is loving one another 
and, and we were challenged to sort of consider together how tricky that can be, how challenging that can be. But another way that we can be sure we are Christians is that we are remaining in God's truth. We're holding on to the revealed truth. And this is not just an intellectual exercise, assigning up to a set of doctrines. It's a way of being that enables us to love better. So I'm going to try and unpack some of what that means this morning. What is the essential and vital truth and how do we hold on to it? I'm sure you'll agree with me that there are a lot of deceptions going on these days. There's fake news. There's scams. Many of you, I'm sure, will have been subject to or had brushes with scams. Maybe even your own image on a Zoom call. Uh, have you found that filter that will subtract the wrinkles yet? Uh, from the image. I, I highly recommend it. Um, and deception and lying has become something uh, of a commercial art form. I don't know how many of you have watched the series The Traitors on the television over recent weeks. We, we missed it, but uh, it sounds like it was very good. And I think I was just looking at the news over this last week. Almost every day of the week, there's a story about deception. <clears throat> but then to give some more serious examples, there are some people who you cannot deceive on a particular topic. I'm thinking about the Holocaust survivor confronted by a Holocaust denier or the eye intensive care consultant appearing on the television after a shift, exhausted and confronted by a protester who tries to tell him it was all a, a fake. So why have I started off talking about deception? Um, well, there are various words that you could put under, uh, over this section of, of 1 John uh, as, as a summary. And I think one of the contenders would be the word deception. I wanted to talk a little bit about John and who John was, the writer of these three short letters and the gospel that's named after him. He's one of the disciples. He describes himself in, in John 13:23 as the one whom Jesus loved. So he knew Jesus personally. He'd been a close friend, and he'd been there at many of the really important parts of, of Jesus' ministry. And he starts off his, uh, this book declaring, and we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. If you wanted to perpetrate some deception on the subject of Jesus, don't try it with John. He's not going to be taken in for a moment. He knows, not just from years of being with Jesus and following him around, but also in the following years when he saw what happened after the resurrection in the church and in the lives of individuals. He was 110% convinced, as they say, don't mess with Big John would have been good advice. Now, the other prominent player in the, in the scenario that's depicted in our reading, uh, verse 18 tells us, Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. They went out from us. Tom Wright translates it as anti-Messiah. 
his version of verse 22 is, is this. Who is the liar? Is it not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? Such a one is the anti-Messiah who denies the Father and the Son. So what have these antichrists, these anti-Messiahs been up to? Well, the passage doesn't tell us exactly, but they have been in the congregation and they have decided to leave that congregation of believers and, and started offering a different Jesus. Maybe they've been saying that if you come to us and have a look at Jesus from this angle, it'll be much more straightforward and better for you. They might have been suggesting that Jesus wasn't really human. He was just some kind of spirit. That he was not the son of God at all, but just a sort of good man and a good moral example. They may have been trying to sideline Jesus and get people to believe that a mystical experience of God was all that you need. No need for any great reference to Jesus as Christ and Savior. So what was John's reaction to these people? Basically, they had been suggesting that he, John, was lying about Jesus, and John was not having it. Reading between the lines, it sounds like John was angry. If you look at verse 22, who is the liar? but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. I'm not trying to deceive you, but you're the ones doing the deceiving. He writes in verse 26, I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. He's not angry because someone has dared to oppose him. He's angry because he doesn't want his children, as he sees them, as he calls them, to miss out, to lose out, to no longer be a part of the church to miss out on playing their part in all that God is doing through Jesus and the church. So what is his message to this little church, this recently fractured church, people feeling perhaps left behind, perhaps missing some people that they'd previously regarded as friends? Well, it comes down to one word, and the word is abide. Verse 24 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. So let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, and the consequence will be, then you will abide in the Son and the Father, and eternal life will be ours. There it is again in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Abide is a word we don't use too much in conversation these days. Well, I don't anyway. I suppose you might say, I have an abiding memory, or I I cannot abide such a person or such a thing. But we tend to use other words. And the Greek word is meno. And the verb meno comes with uh, a range of uh, associated meanings like dwelling, enduring, remaining, being present, standing. It's a rich, multifaceted word. And strangely enough, Cam Cato, our youth minister, when he was looking for a name for the Sunday evening youth group, uh, chose abide. He didn't call it repent. He could have, I suppose. He chose a word that indicates that you can belong over time while you work out what exactly you believe. And the same would be true of us here. If you're not quite sure 
exactly what you believe. Abide here with us as we work out together what it means to abide in Jesus. To help us understand uh, this idea of abiding, I think it's helpful to turn our attention to our second reading of this morning, John 15. And here John uses the word abide 11 times in 10 verses, which is some, some doing. And he ties it to an image uh, that Jesus used to describe the relationship between himself and those who believe in him. He declares himself in verse 1 to be the true vine. But before we move on to that, I want to tell you about our plum tree. Uh, one of the best wedding presents that we got 13 years ago was this thing that looked like a stick. Uh, we put it in the garden, and it has grown beautifully over the years. Some years it produces far more fruit than we can accommodate, so we're giving it away left, right, and center. Even bags of it will appear at, at the back of church. And, uh, and I brought some of the plum tree to show you. Uh, it's, a, it's a, yeah, here it is. Now, isn't it, isn't it beautiful? It's, um, you can see the, the beautiful curve in it. Um, I think there are eight little branches coming off here. Uh, it, it's fine, but there's an obvious problem with, with this. Uh, it is no longer abiding in the plum tree. Uh, the chances of it producing some fruit, they're limited, aren't they? Uh, the chances of it growing at all are, are, are limited. I'll just put it down here. That, uh, there it is. Jesus says to his disciples, just as the branch cannot produce fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And he underlines the, the same idea in the following verse. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 6, he points out the obvious, that such a branch, it just withers and it ends up on the fire. And then Jesus goes on to outline the more positive aspects of abiding, just quickly to run through them. In verse 7, prayers can be answered. Verse 8, the Father is glorified. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. When I studied biology at school, I couldn't get excited about plants. Animals and humans, that was great. But the one thing that I can remember about plant biology is the xylem and the phloem. And I, 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 these are fantastic words. If you're ever stuck for a word beginning with X in a Scrabble game, X-Y-L-E-M is a valid, a valid word. And phloem doesn't begin with an F. It's a P-H-L-O-E-M. I think I liked them because they were sort of unusual words. And as many of you, I'm sure, will remember, the, these things are vessels within a plant that allow water and minerals to travel around the plant. And a, vi a vine is no different. Abiding in Jesus allows God's love to flow. This love circulates between Father and Son, then to us and from us, directed back to Father and Son, and also from each of us to the other. Like the vitality that flows up the vine to the branches, and if we allow that love to flow, we fulfill Jesus' commandment. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Jesus chose this image because it says something really important. It speaks of organic connection, of an expectation of growth based on the vitality that flows from the vine to the branches. It's about enabling the branches together to be all that they were designed to be and in the end involved in developing fruit which celebrates the identity of the vine. Ultimately, it speaks poetically about our identity as Christians playing our part in God's worldwide eternal plan and bringing that plan to fruition. Abiding in Jesus means too believing in him as the son of God. We referred to John 3.16 a couple of weeks ago. People will know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Abiding in Jesus means affirming and reaffirming that belief by our words and actions. Every time we worship together, we abide. Every time we say the creeds together, we abide in him. When we pray with Jesus-inspired prayers, we abide in him. Paul, writing to the, to the Colossians, summarizes the same idea well. Another 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to God and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. So John's advice to us is this don't be anti-Christ, be pro-Christ Don't allow yourself to be deceived or sold a lie. Beware of a stripped back or distorted version of Jesus which promises everything but in the end delivers nothing. John's advice to those early believers remains good advice for us too. To finish, let me put it this way. Hold on to this truth and this truth will hold on to you. Hold on to the real Jesus, and the real Jesus will hold on to you. And rather than pray, I wanted us at the end to have a look at an image. There it is. And just spend a moment quietly reflecting and praying around that image to yourself. Thank you.